0: Today we're going to be reading 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 1 to 16. Do not speak angrily to an older man, but talk to him as if he were your father. Treat younger women like younger men like brothers. Treat older women like mothers and younger women like sisters. Always treat them in a pure way. Take care of widows who are all alone. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, the first thing they need to learn is to do their duty to their own family. When they do this, they will be repaying their parents or grandparents. That pleases God. If a widow is all alone and without help, then she puts her hope in God and prays night and day for God's help. But the widow who uses her life to please herself is really dead while she is still living. Tell the believers there to do these things so that no one can say they are doing wrong a believer should take care of his own relatives especially his own family if he does not do that he has if he does not do that he has turned against the faith he is worse than a person who does not believe in god To be on your list of widows, a woman must be 60 years old or older. She must have been faithful to her husband. She must be known as a woman who has done good works. By this, I mean good works such as raising her children, accepting visitors in her home, washing the feet of God's people, helping those in trouble and using her life to do all kinds of good deeds. But do not put younger widows on that list. After they give themselves to Christ, they are often pulled away from him by their physical needs, and they want, and then they want to marry again, and they will be judged for not doing what they first promised to do. Also, these younger widows began to waste their time going from house to house. They begin to gossip and busy themselves with other people's lives. They say things that they should not say, so I want the younger widows to marry have children, and take care of their homes. If they do this, then no enemy will have any reason to criticize them. But some of the younger widows have already turned away to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, then she should care for for them herself. The church should not have to care for them. Then the church will be able to care for the widows who have no living family.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Anders, for the prayer. And uh, I think I also have to thank you for uh, the introduction about the International Day of Kindness, because I also have something pretty similar. But it's not the same thing. Um, we've all heard of the word charity before, right? It's very similar to kindness. Um, and today the word is, if you look at a dictionary, the first definition they give you is it's a generosity or helpfulness, especially to those who are suffering or those who are in need. But what is interesting is the history of this word, or, or the technical term, etymology of the word charity. And um, it actually is a very Christian word. And some of the older guys here might, might already know this. If you read the KJV, you might know this. Uh, it comes from the Latin word caritas, which is the translation of the greek word agape in in the latin vulgate and uh, what do these words mean these words primarily mean uh... they were to, they were primarily used to show god's love for us and from that our love toward god and toward others so that's what charity actually meant it's the christian's love for his or her fellows but today it just means generosity and you know you you might you might think that is simply because of secularization. You know, the world has become very secular. That there's this change from uh, the Christian love to just simple generosity. But I believe there is something, something a bit more deeper there, and uh, that that question is something that I would like to answer uh, from from our study of One Timothy chapter five today. But uh, before that. We'll, we'll quickly remind ourselves of where we are and what we're studying, especially because we took a two-week break from, from our study in 1 Timothy. So um, this is Paul's first letter to a pastor, a young pastor, Timothy, in the church in Ephesus, and uh, Paul is writing some instructions to him, what he's supposed to do at church, how, how he is to conduct himself as a pastor, and so on. And we did see that this church had some problems with uh, false teachers. And uh, there was also, um, it it can be quite clearly seen that the church had some problems with unity. There was some struggle, some friction. And um, Paul in chapter three, verses 14 and 15, he explicitly states the purpose of the letter. I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And uh, lastly, just just before we took the break, we saw Paul's exhortation to Timothy to lead the church not only by preaching and teaching, but also by his example of of godliness, which is beneficial in this life and in the life to come. In the passage for study today, Paul starts to describe what godliness looks like inside the church. Uh, that is how one ought to behave in the household of God. Uh, how, how the church as a whole is to act caringly toward its its members, how one another ought to treat each other uh, in, in both a caring and a discerning manner. <clears throat> so let's, let's uh, think about today's passage. Now, Paul has already been describing the church as God's household. Uh, we just saw in chapter 3, verse 15, that he mentions the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And in chapter five, he starts describing the members that are in the church with uh, the titles of family members. And uh, he can't be any clearer in stating the fact that we are part of God's family and uh, that we ought to relate to one another in that manner. When we call God our father and we call other Christians brothers and sisters. So in, in chapter five, verses one and two, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. So you see, he mentions all the members of a family, a father, a mother, a brother, and a sister. In in today's passage, uh, what we have today, verses one to 16, uh, Paul talks only in detail about how the church ought to treat the women, but um, I suppose we can briefly touch on those first few words about treating how to treat an older man and a younger man. So do not rebuke an older man. This is in accordance with God's commands in uh, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 32. It says, you shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God, I am the Lord. So firstly, let's just acknowledge that the Bible has one of the best ways of describing old people. Uh, <laughs> the gray-headed. I'm looking at Robert. <laughs> both of them. Both of them. Uh, I mean, in, in Proverbs, it says the silver-headed. It's that's, that's even cooler. But joke, jokes aside, though, you can see that God is really serious about respecting uh, older, older people. And uh, the command is honor the presence of an older man and fear the Lord. It's, it's sort of connected. So we are to honor older men as fathers and older women as mothers. Uh, Paul then says, do not rebuke but encourage. So here he does not mean that Timothy is never supposed to rebuke uh, the elders of church. Uh, he's a pastor and, and uh, you can see uh, a little further in next week's passage in verse 20 that Paul actually uh, encourages or, or actually commands Timothy to rebuke those people, those elders who are persisting in sin. So what, what he wants to tell Timothy here is, don't be very rash, don't take out your anger on them, just to show your anger. Uh, don't be harsh and uh, attacking when you rebuke them. Be respectful. And uh, the same goes for younger men, but he is to treat them respectfully, but not at the same level as the older. And uh, the younger women, he is to treat as sisters with purity. That is, he's not supposed to objectify them or have conversations with them that are provocative or flirtatious. He's to avoid even the appearance of evil and the same applies to the men here. And uh, this instruction about treating younger women with purity Paul gives to Timothy and uh, I think it would be okay for me to say the converse is true for, uh, for the ladies. Uh, treat younger women as sisters and the younger men as brothers with, with all purity. Oops, sorry. So in a sense, uh, in those first two verses, Paul is saying, respect one another as if they were your own family members because we're all part of God's household and we are a family. So about uh, the main, main chunk in the passage today, I'm sure at least some of you after hearing the passage uh, passage read or maybe you read it at home, you were wondering that Paul is speaking an awful lot about widows here. And uh, it was necessary for him at, at that particular time in, to that particular church to talk about that particular issue in, in quite some detail. Uh, it's understandable that this church had a number of widows and Paul is addressing some real issues that, that they were facing, practical things. And uh, we, do, we do know that in those times, the government was worse and, uh, in a number of ways. And uh, for sure, they were not giving out unemployed benefit or paid sick leaves. And in, in those times, the churches played this role. And uh, today, as we read this passage then, how, how, how is it useful for us? Especially if we're not ourselves widows or we're not a church that has a huge number of widows. What we can extract is the principles of what Paul uh, commands Timothy, because these principles are based on God's law and what Paul commands Timothy is uh, from the Holy Spirit. So we can extract those principles. And uh, I've, I've got here three principles because three is a great number. Um, but I think that you can, you can uh, probably find some more. So the first one that I have is the duty toward family. So take a look at these verses, chapter 5, verse 4. If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Chapter 5, verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And uh, lastly, chapter 5, verse 16. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. So all these verses, they talk about the responsibility that we have toward our own families, and uh, even even the extended families, the relatives. And uh, frankly, that that's, family value is something that's gradually disappearing in, in today's world. And I notice that people have lesser and lesser uh, responsibilities toward their parents, lesser and lesser attachment to their families, And uh, sometimes children even consider elderly parents a curse. And uh, you can only imagine what the relatives go through. Paul, however, says that children and even grandchildren must learn to show godliness to their household by supporting their parents and grandparents. And uh, I believe this support is not only financial. In fact, Paul Paul, Paul says that this is pleasing in the sight of God because it comes under the command to honor your your parents. Just take a look at how far Paul goes to show the evil in neglecting one's family and relatives who who are in need and who are asking you for help. Such a person, Paul says, has denied the faith, and not only that, but he is also worse than an unbeliever. So the reason he says that is an unbeliever does not drag Christ's name in the mud when he does something unbeliever-like. The believer, on the other hand, he not only acts like an unbeliever, but while doing that he drags the name of Christ in the mud. So how does this apply in a day and age of government subsidiaries, government support, where the state takes care of certain things? As Christians, we must must definitely be uh, perceptive to the needs of uh, others, especially if they are in our own families and uh, if they're in our own congregation. Uh, here, here at church we share our needs at the end. We, we pray for one another and we encourage one another and that's that's really cool. That's really good. That's that's great But at the same time uh, I would like you to consider these questions How often do do we think about our family members our extended family and those people that shared their needs? Uh, after the service are these people in our prayers continually do we pray for their salvation if they are not believers yet? And lastly, is prayer the only way that we can help? Another thing that uh, we, we should think about is how quickly and how easily we excuse ourselves out of uh, filling in a need. For example, how many of us are really eager to sign up for making coffee in the morning or, or cleaning the church after? As soon as the question is asked, we feel a little uncomfortable, but immediately our brain starts thinking, what else do I have to do at the same time, right? And, and we've, we've got those excuses. I've got an exam, I've got an appointment, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. I've got some plans. And frankly, some of those excuses are valid and uh, you're not, not all of you have to sign up today. But... <laughs> <laughs> but you know i'm just i'm just telling you this this is the situation if we are honest with one another we do come up with excuses but at the same time we we have a duty to do good to others especially in our family and and in our church and we have this duty not simply because we call ourselves christians but because god has been infinitely good to us in christ and christ made no excuses even though he shed. so uh, I remember the scientific term, but you know he he shed, um, he was sweating blood. Yes, that's the simple way of saying it. You know, even though he was emotionally very very much in anguish, he did go through it because of the joy that was set before him. So that's the first principle that we have a duty to do good to our families and to our congregation. And the second principle that I have is identifying real need. Paul, in verse 3, he asked Timothy to honor those who are truly widows. Uh, By that, he means someone who is absolutely helpless and destitute. From the context, we can clearly understand that there were widows who were widowed, but really were in no particular need. Uh, Paul even comments in verse 6 about those widows who were self-indulgent, selfish widows who were consumed with pleasure, uh, materialism, and uh, sensuality. And he says such a person is spiritually empty and dead. They are not in physical need, they are in spiritual need. And the church need not address the physical needs of such people. Their spiritual need is of a greater importance. Therefore, Paul commands in verse seven, command command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. And uh, Paul gives three restrictions for a true widow, one whom the church can add to its list of people That need financial aid, a sort of registry. First thing he first restriction he places is the age. Verse nine let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than sixty years old. As far as Paul is concerned, if she if this woman, this widow is under sixty, she can support herself, and if she can, she should. Just as there is a duty to family members, there is a duty to support oneself for as long as you are physically able to. And in verse five, he also says a true widow is someone who is left all alone, someone who is destitute. Paul's first qualifier and the second principle, therefore, is that there must be an actual need if the church is to provide financial aid and assistance to someone. On the other hand, the church can and should refuse those who are lazy and irresponsible and simply want want to exploit the church for its kindness. So the third principle that I have is the church has a duty to serve the godly. So the second and third restrictions that Paul places on widows who wish to be in the registry, uh, these are quite related to godly life, and Paul separates those two as, as two different restrictions. So the second is uh, also in verse 9, is that she must have been the wife of one man, or the wife of one husband. Paul actually does not mean to say that if some, some widow remarried, uh, then, then she should not be included, uh, because he himself commands young widows to remarry in verse 14. I would have younger widows marry, he says. What he means here is that this woman must have been a faithful wife. She must have been married to one husband at, at a time, and if there was a situation where she had to remarry, then also she should have been faithful to that second husband. And the third restriction that we see in verse 10 is that this widow must have had a reputation for good works. She must have raised children, and that's not only limited to her own children, but also to those children that were uh, abandoned by, by people in those days. And this was quite common back then. And today as well, I believe it's quite common. And uh, she must have shown hospitality, washed the feet of the believers, and cared for the afflicted. In essence, she must have had the servant of all attitude. She must have been a godly woman who was serving everyone without holding back. And only then Paul allows the widow to be enrolled in the registry for people receiving financial aid from the church. So the third principle is that the church and its members have a duty to meet the needs of the members, but only those who are godly. So why does... Paul give Timothy these these three restrictions these three qualifiers to enroll widows. And for, if you're honest the standards are quite strict. Most of us might not hold up to it. And you might be wondering why. You might even be thinking, wait a minute, isn't the church supposed to help everyone without without any discrimination? Isn't the church supposed to be generous to everyone? Doesn't the Bible say love your neighbor and do to others what you would have them do to you? So these possible questions that I suppose are relatable thoughts, uh, I believe they definitely have something to do with the question I asked at the beginning. How did the meaning of the word charity become being generous despite its actual meaning of Christian love? Firstly, we have forgotten what the duty of the church is. We somehow started to think that the duty and the mission of the church uh, is, is to be kind, nice, and generous to, to other people. And uh, another very common phrase is to make the world a better place. And no wonder the word charity, which meant the Christian love for his fellows, became generousness. Because charity or, or love is first and foremost command of Christianity. And if we think that this this is how we should define our mission, then the meaning of the word love will also change with it. The duty of the church is to love others, but not in this indiscriminately loving and affirming way. This is something very modern. It is quite the opposite. To love is to rebuke, and that is what we are most deserving of. Someone has to tell us that we are sinners, that we are blinded by sin to the goodness of God, his righteousness, and that we are blind to the fact that we stand in judgment before him because we're a bunch of selfish rebels and we hate God and his righteous rule. This is the church's primary duty, to be a pillar and buttress of the truth in, in Paul's words according to ESV translation. To tell the truth is, is the church's primary duty. We, we, to tell this, to, to make this duty happen, we can of course meet people's uh, physical needs. But if we don't tell them what is their spiritual situation then there really is no difference between a soup kitchen that's run by a church and uh, a similar charity run uh, in Barona Street by the Hare Krishna group. They do pretty much the same thing then. Or any other non-Christian charity for that matter. Uh, let me let me give you an example. Suppose there's a bomb in a building. A guy who knows that there is this bomb, he goes in, he makes sure there's good heating, good electricity, uh, and running water for people. And uh, then he gives them cookies, cake, gives them hugs, and tells them he loves them, and then he leaves. And then a second guy comes in, he comes in running, and he tells all of them, guys, haven't you heard? There's a bomb in this building. You've all got to go out. If you stay here, It will explode, the building will collapse on you, and you will all die. And if someone is trying to gather their belongings or something, he might even rebuke them. Are you stupid? There's a bomb in the building, get out. After after he's pulled the people out, he might meet some of their needs. He might provide them with food, he might provide shelter for them. And we have to ask the question, which guy did the better job? Here it's quite obvious, I think, the second guy. But most Christians today would say the first guy because he did not offend anyone. He was, he, was, he was acting very charitably toward them. He met their needs. But he never met their first and foremost need, which was to live. They were in dire danger and he needed to save them. So I hope you made the connection between the church's duty and, and this analogy that I gave. The primary need of people today is spiritual and that has to be met first. Meeting the physical needs is something that the church must do but, and, and must be involved in, but this is the case only if we meet spiritual needs of people. And, and only if that spiritual need is given attention to every, every, every day. So Paul says in verse 16, let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So he says, let the church not be burdened with helping those who can help themselves or those who have family, most importantly, let the church not be burdened with helping those that are ungodly and self-indulgent. The Word of God does not condone sin, it condemns it. So neither can the church condone sin, let encourage it. So look at the reasons that uh, Paul gives to refuse enrolling younger widows. Verses 11 to 13. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learned to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. Uh, I believe Peter read the children's Bible translation. So this passage was much easier there. And uh, I believe most of you were, were, I hope most of you were listening because that was much easier to understand than this. (laughs) But to quickly put it, reason number one that Paul gives is that their passions draw them away from Christ, and reason number two is that they learn to be idlers, gossips, and busybodies. So if the church were to financially support such a person, would the church not be encouraging them to continue in such behavior, maybe even start such behavior? Uh, Recently, uh, one of my English students, he told me about a conversation he had with a with a couple of guys he met in Germany. And uh, he asked them the usual question of, so what do you guys do for a living? And uh, they simply replied, nothing, we do nothing. These men were just living off the government's unemployed benefit. Uh, the government provides subsidized housing for them. Uh, the government provides uh, a, a benefit that you can receive every month. And they said, we have enough money to live. We have enough money for a couple of beers every day and we're good we don't do anything and when their time was up in, in in a particular district they would just move to the other one find the same the same deal and, and start doing the same thing and uh, Paul is saying here if we do the same if, if we give widows who are young and able financial aid then we're, we would be encouraging the same sort of behavior in them they would learn to become lazy they would eventually become gossips, and busybodies. Paul does not condemn these young widows by saying something like, oh, these people are the worst. Just, just throw them out of church. Uh, in, in the following verse, I believe he says, some have gone behind uh, Satan. Uh, these, these are women who have left the church. But he doesn't condemn them, saying just, just sh- send them out of church. Instead, he actually gives them good advice. He identifies the fact that they do have temptations, they, they will have these passions since they are young, they're young widows who have lost their husband and their family, and they might have these needs. So Paul says, ask, ask them to marry, build a family, and get busy with doing God's work. So he asked Timothy to meet what their need is, the spiritual need, in, in, in much the same way our primary duty is to reach out to those who are in spiritual darkness, so that they they as well might see Christ, who is the light of the world. To make known to them the truth that is Christ and His gospel, that there is salvation for anyone who feels condemned and ashamed of their sin, and that this salvation is a free gift of God, given to all who receive His Son, Jesus Christ, and believing in Him to be their Lord and their Savior. Again, we were not called by God to make this world a better place, but to proclaim that we, along this world, are fallen. The one true living God, as Paul says in this very letter, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. And he is the ransom for all. The church is built by Christ on this truth and the church should uphold this truth. Let us believe in this and also do this. Mm -hmm. Amen.